the thing that drives me a little insane is when people talk about like natural born sellers or that it's a talent, it's innate, those sort of things. It's really not. It's just a muscle that needs to be built. Sometimes people gain some of those muscles through their backstory, like doing team sports or things like that. Like oftentimes you'll start gaining those muscles in a non-professional capacity and then they're kind of transferable. But that doesn't mean that any person can't build these new skills on their own. And so like that's, I think, the critical thing there is to recognize that it can be built and then just to buckle down and do it. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I am thrilled to be joined by Pete Kazanji. Pete is the co-founder of Atrium, a data-driven sales management platform. He's also the author of the popular book, Founding Sales, the early stage go-to-market handbook. As an early stage founder, there's something comforting about the build stage. You're tinkering with the nascent product, honing your MVP, and dreaming up the possibilities of how much folks are going to love what you create. But once you do get out of that comfort zone of quietly building and start trying to sell, things tend to get infinitely more complicated. This is particularly true for early founders with limited go-to-market experience. Getting face-to-face with potential customers and closing a deal is a huge hurdle to clear, especially when you have limited proof points and data to share. In today's conversation, Pete lays out the roadmap for getting founder-led sales right in the early days. From small exercises to build up your selling muscles, like his Turbo Rapport Challenge, to thornier topics like self-diagnosing if your selling narrative is working. He's also got tons of advice for breaking down the art of a sales call. Pete also shares tailored guidance for folks who are facing the additional hurdle of creating a new category and trying to create a new budget with the playbooks he's used building Atrium. I hope you enjoy the interview and Pete's tested tactics for honing your ICP, avoiding common mistakes, and getting to yes. I'm looking forward to the conversation, Pete. Thanks for joining us. I am super excited too. Thanks, Brett. So most people know you through your book that you wrote a number of years ago called Founding Sales, and we'll put a link in the show notes to make sure it's easy for folks to get their hands on a copy. And when you think back to the first draft that you put together, are there things that you've changed your mind about that you've tweaked or maybe that you double down and feel equally as strong about now that it's been a number of years since the first version was published? I think that probably one of the biggest things that has changed in the market is the recognition of how important it is for founders to do the earliest selling in an organization's 
life cycle. There's a deck that I present pretty frequently called founder-led selling. The whole kind of like preamble of it is all about like why founders have to care about this. That part needs a little glowing up. That's not really mentioned in the book as much, but I think it's kind of become pretty table stakes to recognize that. Now that doesn't mean it's any easier for people who don't have a background in selling to earn those new chops. It's obviously very tenable to do, but I think that's probably like the biggest thing is kind of the growing recognition that this is the right design pattern for making early stage companies successful. Why do you think when you look at the last five or 10 years of companies that were started and are working, they tended to be actually started by more technical people versus sales oriented people? I think the reason why is because you have to think about where companies come from. And obviously, investors think a lot about this. You know, I think a little bit about this, but I think where companies come from is, is somebody having like recognizing that there's a problem in the market and then also having enough product and technical capacity in order to see how technology could be fit against that problem to solve it. I actually don't know if that's something that's unique in like the last five or 10 years. I think that that's a fairly common thing in general. Like the people who are observing problems in the world have a tendency to be product-minded folks. They're unsatisfied about this tool or that tool or this unmet need. And then they also have the technical capacity or at least understand how they might fit together the Legos that are in the market or maybe new emergent Legos that have shown up in order to solve that. And this is kind of why those people are going to be the ones who are creating new technical innovation. They're also the ones who are going to be closest to the problem. And then, of course, the new solution that they've pieced together. And that's kind of why they have to be the person to sell it initially as well, because especially when it's new technology or and that's kind of like the the market that we all work in. They're probably the most expert person at that new combination of things in the world. So expecting someone else to be able to articulate the value proposition and sell it effectively is probably going to be a sucker's bet versus them getting good at doing that themselves. So I think combining those two things together is kind of the natural through line of successful early stage, at least B2B companies. When you think of kind of the prototypical B2B founder, maybe it's software infrastructure, SaaS, et cetera, who, as we were both just mentioning, tend to be more product and technically oriented. Why is this work of developing this go-to-market muscle actually more challenging than maybe a lot of people would imagine in the abstract? I think that honestly, the reason why is because it's just a new muscle that people aren't necessarily used to. If you think about the day-to-day of a product manager or a, a software engineer or a designer, or even like you know a consultant, if you think about the, the sort of folks who oftentimes start companies, if you think about the, the actions that they take on a day-to-day basis, they're pretty distant from what eventually sales behavior looks like. So sales behavior is being able to process dozens of parallel conversations concurrently, not at the same time, but hold a dozen or two dozen concurrent conversations in one's head. You're constantly meeting new people. You're rapidly gaining rapport with them. And also things like persuasion and like asking people for money, asking people if they think that the product that you're presenting to them fits the problems that you've revealed to them. All those sort of behaviors are things that you don't necessarily do on a day-to-day basis when you're a product manager or a software engineer or designer or what have you. So it just, it ends up being a little bit new. The thing that kind of drives me a little insane 
is when people talk about like natural born sellers or that like it's a talent, it's innate, those sort of things. It's really not. It's just a muscle that needs to be built. Sometimes people gain some of those muscles through their backstory, like growing up with a lot of siblings or doing team sports or things like that. Like oftentimes you'll start gaining those muscles in a non-professional capacity and then they're kind of transferable. But that doesn't mean that any person can't gain these, build these new skills on their own. And so like that's, I think the critical thing there is to recognize that it can be built and then just to buckle down and do it. And on that point, I think one of the other things that I've noticed is that in most facets of life, we're drawn to the things that we're kind of innately good at. And so if you think about like the competency of building product and you're a product person and that's part of your job as, you know, a five person team in the early days, you as the founder, CEO, and then you think about this new muscle of go to market sales, et cetera. I think there's a tendency just to retreat and not exercise the new muscle and kind of do the things that are in your power alley. The other piece is just starting any new thing, I think requires a lot of activation energy and you kind of have to get over inertia. And so I'm curious if we go down kind of the muscle metaphor, we're going to talk a lot about when you're in the gym, what are the things you need to be doing? Do you have any thoughts on like the meta idea of what are the rituals or systems you put in place to kind of hold yourself as a founder accountable for developing this new competency as opposed to just retreating to the things that you know best? For sure. One of the things that makes founders powerful is their generalism. It's also one of the things that potentially like makes them unemployable after they've <laughs> been founders a couple of times. But that generalism is something that makes them very powerful. And it's a, a mechanism by which to create tremendous enterprise value. And so the way that you, of course, build that generalism is by not shying away from the ability to be a great marketer or be a great writer or be a great seller good enough before, of course, it professionalizes with you know, a VP that you abstract that off to. And, and so I think just recognizing that like your job as a founder, at, at least early on, is to be a very formidable generalist across a variety of um, you. We talk about T-shaped people all the time is you want to make that spike wider and wider. And of course, the way that you do that is by learning new skills and embellishing them, not beyond the asymptote of the S-curve, if you will, because at a certain point, that's better done by a leader that you're going to bring in to succeed you and be even better at that. But I think that's the first thing that you have to recognize. And then the next thing, of course, is like, okay, cool. If we believe that that's the case, then then what are the mechanisms by which we do that? And I think that there's a couple of things that you can do to kind of force yourself <laughs> I think actually, Brett, you had a, a fantastic tweet at one point, which is, what is the thing that you're doing in your professional role that is the equivalent of a piano player playing scales? And so what are the things that you do on a day-to-day -day basis that force you to like repeat the behavior that you need to get good at? And so with respect to go to market and selling in specific, I think there's a bunch of things that you can do day to day. Like one of the things I coach my staff on all the time is we call it turbo rapport, <laughs> turbo rapport. How quickly can you become friends with somebody? And especially how you know, doing that in environments where people might be a little shields up. So an example of that might be most people are maybe not super comfortable just like talking to complete strangers. And so if you can essentially keep score with yourself on how frequently you're talking with complete strangers, and then moreover, how quickly can you get 
that person on your side, whether it's a flight attendant or maybe a bartender or a barista or somebody, somebody who's like maybe used to people, maybe not being the nicest to them in the world. Can you rapidly do that and get them on your side? Because that's a good example of a behavior that you're going to be doing from a sales standpoint. If you think about a 30 minute sales call, probably about the first five minutes is it's a sprint to get them to open up and and to like you because then what you're going to do, at least in a minimally viable way, because you're then what you're going to do is you're going to use that initial affinity and rapport that you've built there to then dig into their business pains in a way where they're going to be honest with you. So like that's an example of a game that is kind of like playing scales, if you will. And then, then the next thing would be, okay, well, there's a variety of different games that you can play or skills you can practice, whether it's like turbo rapport like that, or writing really great emails or telling good stories. And then you just have to kind of KPI yourself on it (laughs) the same way that making sure that you're going to the gym and are you keeping track of that, whether it's your Apple rings or your Strava app or fill in the blank. The same is true with sales. Like one thing that's folks don't necessarily really kind of comprehend with sales is sales is just a question of like a high quantity of high quality selling behavior. And so the behaviors that you're recording are things like customer facing meetings, how many first meetings, how many second meetings, how many opportunities, how many things are getting to proposal, how many emails you're sending, things like that. And so just getting comfortable with instrumenting that and then holding yourself accountable to that is something that's going to lend success to your selling behavior later on. Like, hey, I have an expectation that my account executive should have 15 customer facing meetings a week. Anywhere between five to seven of them should be first meetings with prospects that they never talked to before. They should be sending this many proposals on a monthly basis in order to get, you know, if a if a win rate out of proposals around 80%, we want to see people sending around five to eight proposals in order to get to four to five deals. You then back that up to your own behavior and say, hey, I'm going to talk to five strangers today and I'm going to make friends with this many baristas this week. Those are sort of the meta behaviors that you can kind of get good at. And then it just becomes natural to bring that into your organization professionally. So to drill in on this sort of slightly, let's say you're the founder or CEO of an early stage business. You have an early product. So a product that somebody could actually buy and use. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a second. What do you think a week should look like? Like what is an optimal week in terms of where that founder CEO is spending time across the different parts of the business, including go-to-market efforts? Well, um, I think it kind of depends. It sounds like you said that you have a sellable product and it sounds like also there's probably a technical co-founder in this example as well. Yep. So I think that by no means would you expect a full complement of selling behavior happening there. Like as I kind of noted earlier, a, a calendar for an account executive who's only, only, only selling is probably looking at like 15 to 20 customer facing meetings a week. That would be like a pretty hefty, uh, hefty load there with like 15 minutes of prep and 15 minutes after and the time to kind of like manage an inbox and so on and so forth. So maybe you could probably do about like a third of that or 50% of that. Depends if you have, like, do you have existing customers that you're also onboarding as well? And then you have to spend some of that calendar time doing customer success, implementation meetings, ongoing success, et cetera, et cetera. But spending anywhere between 
a third to two thirds of your time doing that selling behavior. And then the selling behavior, of course, then breaks down into top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, bottom of the funnel. How are you filling your calendar by doing prospecting? That kind of depends on how you get in touch with your ideal customer profile, whether that's inbound or if you're doing outbound. So there's going to be a slice of your time that's going to be dedicated to getting first meetings on the calendar. Then there's going to be a, a segment of time that's dedicated to executing those first meetings. And of course, dealing with like the second meeting, the third meeting, et cetera. And then there's going to be the down funnel time as well, which is closing calls and getting deals across the line. And so it kind of depends on um, what your sales motion looks like, like how many customer facing meetings with how many distinct humans in an organization might be required in order to get a deal across the line. And also if you're doing your customer success as a founder seller initially, but I think that those would be the broad strokes of what a calendar might look like there. In your mind, why does someone buy a piece of software from someone? Well, why do we buy anything? The answer to that is it has to be very clear to me that my future state, the future state that I conceive of with that product or service being applied is dramatically better than my current state, both from a like technical, like left brain standpoint and also a right brain standpoint. And I think this is an important thing, especially for more technical and product founders to understand is that people buy for both reasons. Obviously we buy fashion in order to like tell stories about ourselves and, and represent ourselves and, and what have you. But the reality is, is that people do that in B2B purchases all the time as well. And so what our job is as sellers, especially, especially, especially if you're talking about new categories of software that hasn't really existed before is to reveal that need to the prospect or to the customer in a way where they probably aren't going to land on it on their own. And this is something that when people kind of think of what selling looks like in the movies or what have you, they think about it being talking fast and persuading somebody and, and what have you versus asking questions that then leads an individual down a path, these are not, they're not random questions. They're intentional and directed that lead somebody down a path to recognize the gap in their current business and then puts them in a position where they understand the needs to be met and how they're unsatisfactorily being met right now and the cost associated with that and then potential upside associated with changing, right? Why buy, why now? And then that puts them in a prime position to be receptive to the way that your product comes in and addresses that. But first they have to comprehend that unmet need in a very visceral way that not only helps them understand like, man, I really need this, but also puts it at the top of their list because we all have lots of problems. <laughs> and so what you want in order to drive a transaction is to make sure that that can be at the top of the list. And the way that you can get that to the top of the list is by really revealing a very substantial pain to the individual. And then ideally from a timing standpoint, be executing that conversation in a timely fashion. And th those are what is, are known as compelling events in sales. Like as an example, my software company, Atrium, we make data-driven sales management software. A very critical point in time in a sales organization is after they've hired a bunch of sales reps. And so you really wanna make sure that reps are ramping appropriately such that they're gonna hit their bookings targets in month 
four, five, six, seven, eight. And so the way, of course, you pay attention to that is by looking at the leading indicators to those eventual bookings, those first meetings, those opportunity progressions, all those sort of those behaviors. And unless you have that instrumented, you're in a very bad situation. And so a compelling event for our business would be after an organization has hired a bunch of can executives or an organization has hired a bunch of sales development reps, the, those managers and leaders are feeling that pain very substantially at that point in time. So it's not a big stretch in order to reveal to them the pain associated with not having visibility into that progression. And then of course, the opportunity cost of not helping those reps get to success. And so that's why people buy is that they buy because they're trying to resolve those pains but the pains are not just like technical and business centric. It's also them personally as a sales manager, right? I want these reps to get to success. Also, what does it say about me as a sales manager, as a leader, if I don't get these reps to success? So it's mixing the personal and the business in a way that is like very visceral and also timely helps the transaction come to fruition. You touched on this just a second ago, but I'm really interested. What are some of the things you figured out specifically about selling a product where you're kind of creating a new category versus selling a new product into an existing category? Selling a product into a new category the first thing you're kind of doing is revealing an unmet need because there isn't a budgetary line item. So the examples that I like to use all the time here is like the applicant tracking system market. So like database software that helps you track the recruiting process for new candidates. There's always going to be a shinier, better version of that. So like there's the legacy versions, there was like Taleo and success factors and, and Workday and Jobvite and so on and so forth. And then a new cohort came along in the form of Lever and Greenhouse. Both of them were ATSs. It's like, hey, what's your current ATS? Oh, it's job bite. Oh, okay. If you're like most of our customers, you're grumpy about it for these reasons right here. Oh yeah, that's totally right. Yeah. Well, here's our solution and here's why it's faster. It's shinier. The line item is already there. And we're just trying to persuade the person that like you should drive this car instead of your existing car versus revealing to somebody, Hey, there's an unmet need that you're probably solving right now, either through labor or alternatively through just eating opportunity cost. And so in that regard, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to make the invisible visible. It's a harder sales challenge, <laughs> but it's kind of the business that we're in as entrepreneurs, because that's how we take this new technology that is developed and bring it to bear. Really what that kind of comes down to is like doing a really good job of revealing to people those needs using narrative and stories to help people understand how the current way that they're going about it is unsatisfactory and then bringing to bear, like helping them understand how a new way could address this in a way that's very different than how they're going about it. The other thing too, with like new category sales is usually it's going to be, you know, at least early on, it typically will be lower win rate than your kind of traditional situation where you're just like replace like you have a better mousetrap than the existing mousetrap in this case it's like oh well like you know instead of having mousetraps why don't we figure out a way of making sure that the mice never breed to begin with as an example it's reframing people's thinking and that can be tough for folks. It's going to be lower win rate to start out with. Oftentimes you're going to have to have multiple passes through the funnel with a given prospect in order for like the second time around 
they're going to be more primed to buy or the third time around. So making sure that you keep close with those prospects who definitely had pain when you had your discovery conversations with them, but recognizing that they may not necessarily transact initially. And then repetition, 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 repetition. The other thing I would add, one of the concepts that we have, like Atrium is in the situation that I'm describing right now, where the traditional way that organizations try to use data to manage sales teams is using horizontal analytics software, whether it's reporting in the CRM or like, you know, legacy business intelligence software or what have you versus dedicated software that's focused on using metrics to improve the performance and manage sales reps. And so you have to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat that there's a new way of going about things that like they should change the way that they think about that. And then when you find people who live in the future already is one of the phrases (laughs) that we that we use to describe this in our sales team. Like when you find people who are already in the future with us, you really got to grab a hold of them and hold on tight. And so one of the things that we talk about at Atrium is we call it the lifetime value of the human, LTVH. So when you find those people who really get the new way of approaching the market and approaching the solution, you want to hold on to them tight. You want to make them as successful as possible from a customer success standpoint. And then as, as they go on to other organizations, you want to keep track of them. And because they'll buy again, they'll advocate for other people. You want to make them famous. As one of our board members likes to say, you want to put them in the Pope mobile and drive them around because it's really a snowball rolling downhill. And so the more you can grab a hold of that proof and then bring it forward to the folks who might not live in the future just yet so they can understand oh actually this is the way of doing it because this very famous logo and this big title right here is is using it to improve the way that they go about things and also got promoted (laughs) and got more responsibility as a result of adopting the solution man that sounds like something i'd sign up for sure i'll buy your solution On this point specifically, as you just articulated, oftentimes when you're creating a new category, you have to create new budget. To your point, the ATS is a really elegant example of there was a line item for success factors, and now there's a line item for greenhouse or what have you. Anything specifically around creating a new budget or figuring out kind of who the decision maker is? Because a lot of times with new categories comes new buyers for me, like an example that comes to mind, I always find very interesting is Gainsight, which really created the category of customer success. And so maybe customer success wasn't even really a function or it was nascent and navigating specifically how to get someone to pay in that model may be slightly different. Anything that comes to mind there for you? This is part of the product marketing that organizations do when they construct their sales narrative, which Ariel Jackson at first round does a lot of writing on this, which is fantastic. I think that one, getting your sales narrative really good, including the part of why do current solutions fail? And then what is the cost associated with that? Because it's the costs in question, they can be opportunity costs. And those are typically the places where you can take this thing that's a gap, whether they're labor costs or opportunity costs, and then dollarize them like to create new budget. Probably a good example of this would be, we can use my company. We're pretty close to this. The way that organizations would traditionally try to use data and metrics to manage their teams, of course, is they would use these horizontal analytics solutions. The problem, of course, is that sales managers or SDR managers 
they're not necessarily very analytical or technical by background. It makes sense. They come from being account executives, SDRs, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't mean that they don't want to manage by metric. It just means that throwing death by dashboard at them with walls of Tableau is going to be very effective. It's just going to be a bunch of like spaghetti for them to try to pay attention to. And so what comes out of that is low performance on their team, low performance on their team where the individuals have different issues that are identifiable by metric, like this person's win rate is low because their conversion rate out of these stages is problematic. This other rep over here, he just has an activity problem. He's not doing enough work. And this other rep over here, he's got an issue with pipeline hygiene as indicated by a high number of untouched opportunities. If a manager is not seeing those things and instead is managing by gut, or as we like to joke about managing by horoscope, everybody's win rate is going to be lower than it would be otherwise if the manager was managing effectively by metric. And so either A, you need to dollarize that that opportunity cost there. And ideally in a new category, you prove this through your beta customers, your lighthouse customers, whatever, and then you case studyify it as much as possible. And if you can create a trial situation, if you can use like product-led sales or maybe a sales-assisted motion where the product can deploy in some sort of capacity to indicate that upfront, that can be really helpful. So people have comfort around creating new budget and say, hey, I'm going to give you money in exchange for these raised win rates on my AE team, or I'm going to give you money in exchange for higher performance on my SDR team because now they're being managed better. The other thing you can do as well is oftentimes this will be being done by humans in a labor capacity, right? So again, to use like the atrium example, it might be, hey, you're planning on hiring two more sales operations analysts in order to pay attention to interpret these metrics or interpret these dashboards on behalf of these managers. Okay, great. Now you can just hire one of those people instead. And they spend 50% of their time on these higher value things, as opposed to spending 50% of their time, literally just like reading charts for sales managers and what have you. And so the important thing is to take that hidden loss or hidden budget. The budget might be salary expense, like I just kind of noted, and bring that forward and say, hey, you give me $25,000 for this piece of software and uh, $150,000 in salary expense goes away. Or across these 30 account executives, if we're going to raise win rates by three points from 18 to 21 across this much bookings for your 20 account executives over the years, well, geez, that's, you know, an incremental million dollars in bookings as compared to $50,000 of software. So like that, that's the mechanism by which you would really bring that home. Probably not for the end user or maybe even like the line of business decision maker, but more for the economic buyer, like the CFO who's going to say, all right, show me the actual business case and it better not be sales math. (laughs) Dollarizing it such that you can go arm in arm with your champion to that person who is responsible for dispersing the funds and have an airtight case. That's kind of the way to go about that. As someone's figuring out the narrative that you just articulated, how do they self-diagnose if it's working. And I think kind of what's particularly challenging when you're just getting going is, and you articulated this a minute ago, which is like, you're going to have a lower conversion rate as you're creating a new category. It's also very data sparse. It's not like you have 50 million in recurring revenue and you can start to take a more analytical bent. And so any thoughts on how a founder should reflect on if the narrative is working or is optimal? 
Well, early on, yeah, you're making decisions under uncertainty and you have sparse data, but you really should be paying attention. But sparse data is better than no data. And so early on, even when you're in sales conversations, you see this. You're having a Zoom call with somebody and you're asking them your discovery questions and they're really getting into it. Oh man, yeah, that is a huge problem. Yeah, it is really frustrating. Like they're you can see the hair on the back of their neck stand up. That would be an example of like your discovery questions are landing. Or after your the discovery part of your conversation, you progress to a you know, maybe you're going through a couple slides to frame what your solution does, they're nodding along, right? They're going, uh-huh, yeah, they're active listening. Those are all like really positive indicators versus someone who's like checked out. <laughs> they're really not, it's not landing, those sort of things. So like those are very tactical face-to-face ways that you can identify that. It's probably not dissimilar to when, when people are going on dates, you can tell if it's like working or not. <laughs> And then as you do more and more of those repetitions, then you can start getting into the metrical ways of seeing if it's working. And what that would usually indicate is, okay, are we getting to next meetings? If there is a, a natural progression in your sales motion, we say, hey, like use Atrium as an example, we have a sales assist motion. One of the cool things about our software is it takes about five minutes to set up a free account and people will set it up on their own, but typically it happens in the context of a discovery conversation. And so we measure this very, very specifically, the proportion of discovery conversations that result in an Atrium account being set up is indicative of how well the rep does at eliciting pain and revealing to the individual kind of the challenges that they have in their current organization around how they're using data or metrics to, to measure their team, measure and manage their, their reps. And if somebody's not doing a great job of that, it'll show up in their conversion rates. Typically, we say that about 80% of first calls will result in a, an Atrium account being set up there. So we have about a dozen sales reps right now. So if we see variation in that, we know that somebody is maybe having a hard time with their first calls. You can do that with yourself as a founder seller as well. If you're not getting to second meetings, like, hey, you know, based on what you're saying right here, Brett, I honestly think it would be fantastic for us to maybe deploy our software with you guys, give you a little bit of a taste of what that looks like. Cause it sounds like problem A, B, and C are bugging you. Would you be open to that? And if Brett's response to that is like, heck yeah, let's go. Right. And there's multiple people who are like, heck yeah, let's go. All right. That's working. If the response to that is like, nah, yeah, I don't know, let me, let me talk to somebody like, let me talk to my boss or, or whatever. Well, you know, that's probably indicating that there's a little bit of like work to be done there, both from a discovery question standpoint, or maybe the narrative or what have you. And then as you get better, it's just an iteration loop. All right, great. You know, maybe my chops need to be a little bit tighter from a discovery question or a presentation standpoint, or maybe the presentation is just not landing me or refactor that a little bit. And oh man, now I go from 50% of people saying that sounds good to like 80% of people being like, oh yeah, that's awesome. Let's go. And that's why early on, as a founder seller, one of the things that's really important is to just do lots and lots of repetitions because you're improving your sales motion. There's this phrase in sales called a sales motion. And the way to kind of think about it is it's like the recipe or the map. It's the map through the forest <laughs> to the successful sale on the far end of the, the dark forest. And so the way that you, you make that map more precise and crisper is by just doing lots and lots of repetitions and tuning it and honing it along the way in order to make it such that it's higher probability that you're going to make your way through the forest, you're going to make it through faster, et cetera. And, and all of that is in service of eventually when you hire other account executives, 
we want to equip them with those maps so that they can be very effective forest traversers, if you will. So let's talk a little bit about first sales calls and or sales demos. What does great look like in the context of founder-led selling? What should you be doing in that first call if you're kind of in the top 1% or 10% of first sales calls? Typically, first sales calls have a fairly common structure. Ideally, if you're really early on, we're not trying to do this at scale. It's like the Paul Graham thing, do things that don't scale to start. If you can be in person... It's pretty fantastic. Not everyone can do that, but even if like the economics don't make sense for it to be in person at scale, you can start out in person. That can be really effective. Really effective sales calls start out in pre-call planning. So for the 15 to 30 minutes before you're going to be having your meeting, you're thinking about exactly what it is that you want to achieve in this meeting. You're looking at the characteristics of the organization and the person that you're meeting with to understand how they line up with their ideal customer profile from an organizational capacity and also the individual human that you're talking to. Am I talking to a VP of sales? Am I talking to a sales manager? Am I talking to a sales operations person? Who is the actual persona? And thinking about how this call is probably going to roll out. You're also setting yourself up from a rapport standpoint. You want to look at the individual's background and also think about what you want to talk about in that first three minutes to really kind of break down any barriers. So then the way that a sales call ought to roll out there is one, you're going to spend a few minutes on rapport building. Ideally, you have some sort of social proof or you were able to like elicit something on their LinkedIn profile or, or Twitter, or what have you, probably like LinkedIn profile that allows you to break down some sort of barriers. Like Brett, you know, I know that you're from Philadelphia. It's pretty exciting that the Phillies are going to the World Series. What do you think? Something as, as simple as that, it differentiates you. If you're talking about the weather, you've already failed. <laughs> It's the hallmark of like lazy, lazy sales and usually kind of like manifests across the rest of the call as well. It's a pretty good community in the coal mine. So then what you're going to be doing is moving into discovery. The purpose of discovery questions is to understand the individual's current state, but also reveal things to them. And this is something that junior reps and also founder sellers who are new to the game is they think that a discovery conversation or discovery questions are about going through a checklist, which is not really the case, right? Especially given the fact that there's so much information available either on LinkedIn or other data sources for you to understand like, oh, how many account executives or SDRs are in an organization? That's a pretty typical, important thing for our account executives. There's no reason to ask that question. <laughs> You could just, during your pre-call planning, you should have just looked on LinkedIn and counted them up. But instead, you should be spending your time there getting information and also revealing to the prospect things that they may not have known about. Like, yeah, so Brett, can you maybe share a little bit about how you're using metrics to manage your team right now? And then, you know, Brett answers that question. And of course, then there's like a forking to it. There's like a decision tree where if Brett says, we have a, a pretty meaningful BI implementation. We use, uh, you know, we use Tableau. Oh, okay, awesome. Well, you know, how do people go about actually consuming that? Because oftentimes what we find with the sales managers is, you know, they kind of come from account executives. They're not necessarily the, the biggest into dashboard diving. Oh yeah, you know, it's really difficult for us to get people to consume that information. Got it. Okay, well, has there ever been a situation where people are not consuming that and a bad thing has happened? Yeah, just the other day, right? And so what you're doing there is you're asking these questions but in a guided way to really elicit to the individual and kind of make visible the invisible of pains in their organization, priming them as much as possible to then what you're going to do is you're going to shift from 
framing that for them and bringing forward those pains to them to how your solution goes about it. And so then the kind of the next section of the call, maybe you might spend, and again, this is kind of contingent on how complicated your solution is. So maybe it's like three minutes of rapport and then it's like, 10 minutes of discovery or so. Now we're at the 15 minute mark or so. Now we can change gears and say, okay, great. Let's talk a little bit about how we go about addressing some of those problems that we just covered. And so what that might look like is maybe it's a couple slides to kind of provide a frame of reference to really like what we're in the business of doing is like shaping their perception and like framing them appropriately. And this is where people oftentimes screw up as they say, Hey, let's do a demo. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I can click around over here, click around over here versus, hey, we talked about these problems that you had earlier. Let's give you a conceptual framing of how we address that with some slides, which might be just like conceptual images or what have you. It might not even have like product involved in it. And then we can potentially change gears and like look at the solution itself. Or maybe at that point, we've earned the next meeting and we might be out of time. I say, hey, you know, based on what we've discussed so far, Brett, it sounds like you have problem A, B, C, D, and E. And I gave you a little bit of preview. Why don't we just get another half hour on the calendar in a couple of days here, and we can get a little bit deeper into a bespoke demo to show you how some of our customers address some of these issues that you discussed, and then talk about next steps. How's, how's Thursday look for you, Brett? And close for the next meeting. And so like that would be a very effective sales call, keeps the different parts, like is able to not run out of time, at the end and you're able to close for whatever the next thing is. So when people talk about like always be closing, and obviously it's from Glengarry Glen Ross, but it's not just closing business, it's closing for whatever the next thing is. You know, Brett, based on what you're saying so far, I really think we like we should just turn on a free Atrium account for you. It takes about three minutes right now. I think you mentioned earlier that you don't have a hard stop. Why don't you share your screen? We can turn we can set that up for you. That's closing to turn on an account versus closing for another meeting. So those are kind of like what effective sales calls would look like. The counter example would be a sales call that is not prepared for a sales call that is kind of aimless. What do you want to talk about here today, Brett? Hey, what brought you here? Just like so open-ended from a discovery standpoint as to be useless. Similarly, just demo, 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 or like Harbor Cruise demo over here on your right, over here on your left. Over here, we've got the, the Statue of Liberty versus, hey, you said you had this very specific problem right here. Here's how this solution addresses that problem. You know, here are the three customers of ours that are addressing it similarly. And here's the positive impacts that have accrued to their business as a result of that. Those are effective. That's what an effective sales call looks like. What are your thoughts on the earliest stages of go to market and product building where a lot of these customer sales calls? are actually not just discovery calls, but they can be very user research oriented or kind of the balance between, hey, director of this, I'd love to get your feedback on this early product that we've built versus I'm going in, I'm selling this to this person and kind of the interplay in that gray area when you're just getting going. Any thoughts on balancing that or is it fine that they're together? Should Should it always be, it's a user research call, if you will, or a sales call, or what comes to mind for you? Early on when you're doing customer research, like we did 150 customer interviews when we started Atrium back in 2016. And we we actually used the first round resource because first round is so fantastic at providing resources to their portfolio companies. There's a really fantastic article on first round review called Get in the Van by Michael Sippy. It actually was a talk that was given at the first round capital CEO summit. And so we use that format of that customer interview. And so the customer interview early on, it's just a superpower because People like to share their expertise, 
Nobody minds being asked questions. In fact, an effective discovery conversation isn't that different from an early customer interview. Just you happen to have a more heavily formed opinion of what the solution looks like. So early on, you want to lean into that as much as possible because people are really excited to share their expertise. You're going to be able to talk to a lot of folks, gather a lot of information and also find people who, as I like to say, like you want to put in your backpack for later on when like either on your customer advisory panel and then also to be like later lighthouse customers and so early on lean into that as much as possible and then moreover good customer development interviews do look like good discovery interviews where you should have a hypothesis as to what the problems are but we don't want to show up and say like here's this here's a solution what do you think it's asking people like you know hey brett how do you guys go about using data right now to help your managers manage your team and what you're doing right there is you're eliciting from them the way that they go about this right now like hey brett how big of a problem is that oh it's not really that much of a problem okay well that's a really important thing for you to learn early on before you go and spend a bunch of engineering expense building a solution for folks that either a don't have the problem or b at, at minimum don't perceive that they have the problem now over time as you execute a couple dozen of these customer development interviews you should start seeing patterns in the market like these personas of people say these things these large organizations say these things these smaller organizations say these things the sales operations person well they say these sentences the sales managers well they say these different sentences that are different than the sales operations folks and then that's going to help you understand kind of the shape of the market and show you the opportunities where there's a way to fit technology to solve those to solve those problems so then what we can do is then we kind of switch from a little bit of like mainly gathering to selling. So we still want to do those questions. Say we're talking to a large organization. How do you go about doing this right now? Oh man, we have this like massive Tableau implementation. Nobody looks at it. The BI architect left a long time ago and a bunch of the dashboards are broken. Oh, okay. Got it. Well, what would you say to a solution that and, and map out the way that you go about solving this right now. How likely would you be to want to learn more about something like that? Oh man, take my money. That sounds amazing. First like, nah, that sounds kind of cute. Differentiating between those different things and then getting into like willingness to pay. Like if I could wave a magic wand and make it such that all of your sales managers knew every metric about their reps possible and they're on top of these things, what would that be worth to you? And then you can start getting kind of early pricing signals there. But what I would say is lean into it as much as possible and then even later on, when you have a solution to sell, leading with questions, leading with discovery as much as possible in order to get people in the right, the right frame of mind before you start presenting your solution is always going to be really, really, really effective. And probably the worst thing you could possibly do from a customer development standpoint is to show up and say, hey, Brett, let me pitch you on this. Let me pitch you on this solution, even if it's like a vaporware uh, or slideware or like Figma mocks or, or whatever, like showing up there first is, is not going to be a, an effective way of going about it versus asking the questions, asking how they solve it right now, what's unsatisfactory about it, you know, what they would perceive the costs associated with that problem being, what their willingness to pay might be to resolve that before pivoting to, okay, well, maybe I can show you a little bit of screens here, or maybe I can kind of paint a picture for you. That's still going to be a far more effective way than just showing up and saying, what do you think about my Figma designs here? How does what you just shared map into the idea of developing an ICP and like what is the appropriate definition of an ICP that's useful in the early phase? So maybe we could start both like what level of specificity 
means that you've actually established an ideal customer profile? And what is the process by which you get to figuring that out? So I think the mechanism by which you figure out what your ICP is, is again, those customer interviews to start. And so we had the luxury of being pretty exhaustive about our customer interview approaches. We were pretty thoughtful about making sure that we were interviewing not just small organizations, but also medium-sized sales organizations, large sales organizations, and then different personas within them. So talking to sales reps, talking to sales managers, talking to VPs of sales or CROs, talking to sales operations people. And so once you've executed five, 10, 20 conversations with each of those kind of spaces on the bingo board, if you will, you're going to start kind of seeing different shapes of like where there's an opportunity in the market to then go after. And then what you want to do is get as specific as possible to attack that part of the market. Because what we do as, as entrepreneurs is we take engineering expense and we turn it into product that hopefully is scalable to different types of organizations, but isn't always going to be scalable because like different sizes of organizations will have different needs, different verticals of organizations will have different needs. And um, unless you're in like one of those magical markets where a, a very fundamental unit of value, like, I don't know, Zoom or Slack or Notion or whatever can service lots of different folks, you're probably going to want to like zero in as much as possible. So like what that means is one, you want to be very, very clear on what your organizational profile looks like. So people oftentimes kind of get confused with what ICP is. ICP is both, is a description of what the organization looks like and also the people that you're probably going to have to talk to in that organization to get a transaction done. And so organizational profile would be probably like size of the organization is maybe it's like the number of potential users that are there. There might be some sort of like metrical signifier of like the pain in question. So early on, our early ICP with Atrium was we wanted to see a sales organization that had anywhere between like 10 to 50 sellers in the organization. So if you took SDRs plus account executives, we wanted to be greater than 10, but like less than 50, um, because those were the organizations that were pretty prone to have poor instrumentation, poor metrics, harnesses, et cetera. We've since expanded and now we serve, you know, in the ensuing years, now we serve organizations up to 500 to 1,000 sellers. But early on, if we had tried to service those large organizations, it would have been an absolute disaster. So you want to get really, really narrow there. And then also you want to get narrow in terms of the type of people that you're going to be talking to. And like, it might be different in different sizes of organizations. And so early on, you want to be very, very narrow in that ICP. And the way that you hone in on that is by saying, hey, where is the gap in the market? Where's the sucking sound? Because that's, that's what we do as entrepreneurs is we identify unmet need and then think about like where the beachhead is that we can tackle in order to prove value and then either raise that incremental next round of funding or earn the right to fight another day there. And then by focusing in very narrowly on that ICP, those folks are going to know each other. They're going to recognize each other's logos. They're going to, you know, they go get beers with each other, all those sort of things. And so you're going to do yourself a big favor by not only putting your engineering efforts against shared features and functionality that that size of organization or, or specific persona really cares about. You're doing your best job to make word of mouth your friend as well. In these early phases, how do you untangle if you have an ideal customer profile problem? a product problem, or maybe an explanation or narrative problem? Different metrics can kind of show you where the issue is. So an explanation problem would indicate that you don't get any deals done. 
<laughs> right? Nobody wants to go on a second date with you or nobody wants to give you money in exchange for the promise of the solution that you're deploying. So then it's like, do they not perceive that they have a problem? And like, do they not actually have the problem that is being solved? And so that might be an ICP thing, or it might be that they do have that problem and they just didn't quite comprehend how you solve that through the communication there. And so like, if you know that they have the problem in question because like their organization looks like other organizations. And then moreover, like when you were doing those discovery questions, like, oh yeah, you have the problem that we solve. And then when we pivoted around to kind of present to them how we address that problem, it just didn't land. That's not an ICP problem. That's a narrative problem. That's a explanation problem. That's a persuasion problem. Then, so then you were asking about product problems. Product problems really kind of manifest in the form of non-usage, right? Because what we're in the business of doing as sellers is we want to, and founder, founder sellers is we want to find people in the market that have the problem that we solve. We want to convince them that it's worth giving us a shake to see about solving the problem that they have with our solution. And then importantly, we transact with them but that's not where it's done. They actually, we need to deliver on the value to them. And so what that means is seeing the outcomes that they wanted to see from the product or the product promise that we presented to them. And so what that looks like is that looks like usage of the product. It looks like it looks at the outcomes associated therewith. And so if you kind of break it up that way, if you're selling deals, but then people are not getting to success, and they're not using, like the dogs are not eating the dog food, well, that kind of indicates that there's a product problem there. If when you do deploy the product to people, they actually really get it and they use the heck out of it and they have a lot of success, but for whatever reason, you're kind of struggling to get people to give you a fair shake, like your win rates are problematic. Well, that seems to indicate that there's like a narrative problem there. There's a presentation problem there. And so you can kind of break it down at those different stages and hone in on like where exactly the hitch is in your swing, which early on when you're doing low volume, that's more kind of like gut or instrumentation by osmosis. But then as you get larger and you have you know, five, 10, 15, 20 sellers, you can kind of start seeing where like the map has been drawn through the forest. The recipe has been successfully made. Like we know that if you follow this recipe, you can bake cakes. You know, if you follow this recipe, you can close deals. And then if you have a dozen reps or two dozen reps and you see where they're different shortfalls are like this person right here doesn't get to second dates. They have an explanation problem. This person over here, they have a poor win rate out of proposal down funnel. They seem to have a different set of problems, but the beginnings of this is you can atomize the sales process, the sales and success process in order to see where the shortfall is. And that gives you indications of where your improvement area is, like where the critical path is early in the existence of your organization. I'm sure this is your favorite topic in the world, which is what is the first sales hire you should make? I also think it's like the most dangerous job in startups. It's very rare that a technical founder hires someone and it ends up working. So you person stepping into the role really needs to have a lot of, lot of enthusiasm, but <laughs> what's sort of your, your framework or model for not screwing that up? The main way that that gets screwed up historically and kind of the, the joke about like startups can't get to scale until they've uh, fired their first sales leader is usually where that failure comes from is the fact that the sales motion hasn't been developed yet. The recipe has not been concocted. It's, it's instead, hey, can you come in here and create this recipe for me? That's not a recipe for success, so to speak. That's the primary failure, the fit primary failure mode. Instead, the way you should be looking at it is 
once you've developed this initial minimally viable sales motion, this recipe or this map that I refer to, what you want to do is you want to hire one or two incremental sellers to to execute that, right? Because what we want to see is like, hey, can someone or a set of someone's can they bake this cake as effectively as I can when given the same ingredients and given the same recipe? And that's literally the purpose of that next stage of the sales organization. Again, like, yes, revenue acquisition is all well and good, but the way that you're going to build a big business is not by saying, hey, these two reps right here are particularly important. It's, it's the fact that I can get these two. If I can get these two reps to success, then I definitely can get four reps and then eight reps and so on and so forth. But it's the first step on the way to 50 reps to 100 reps, etc. And so what you should be looking for in that first sales, those first set of sales hires is people who are comfortable with early product sales. Again, you shouldn't be expecting them to concoct the recipe, but they should add to it. They should be able to iterate it, right? Or or at least have have an appetite. They shouldn't be unhappy if it's not completely tricked out and finalized the way that it might be in a thousand person sales organization with every single resource in the world. Oftentimes where I like to coach people to look for this person or these set of people is early sellers at other folks in the market that you serve. So to use um, to use the applicant tracking system uh, example early on, like say you're selling a new HR tech solution, looking for people who were previously earlier sellers at a place like Greenhouse or Lever or Lattice or fill in the blank, selling to a similar buyer persona with a similar ICP and a similar sales motion is an effective way of going about that. So you want to look for people who have stage fit. So not looking for people who are sellers at like a thousand person organization or what have you, because they're going to have very different sets of expectations. And then also persona, like buyer persona fit. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent buyer persona fit, right? Like, you know, if you sell to HR, you know, you could probably hire somebody who comes out of re- selling recruiting or maybe, you know, selling a payroll solution to, to HR or what have you, even if you're selling Lattice or you're selling something else, something else like that. And then if you can't have that, at least complexity of sales motion alignment, which is typically tied to average contract value. So having somebody who is a seller who comes from a transactional sales background selling to like local businesses or like non-technical users, maybe selling point of sale solution to mom and pop coffee shops because from Square or um, Toast or something like that. And then expecting that person to be able to sell second generation business intelligence software to data teams or what have you is probably not a great idea. And so what you want to do is you just want these like these characteristics to kind of like map together to some extent. And that's going to set you up like more heavily for success there. But ultimately what you want is you want folks who are excited about being tactical and early on. And, th- and that's really attractive to folks because usually these folks are risers. They want to be a VP of sales when they grow up. And so they know that they're probably not going to be the VP of sales at this organization. But this is something that I talk about with my reps all the time is like when you are a seller at an early stage organization, creating a new category, the muscles that you build there around defining that market, iterating the sales motion, et cetera. It really is a rarefied set of skills that will serve you very, very well throughout the rest of your career. So maybe to wrap up, Pete, more so than other company builders, you've chosen to open source and share so much of your thinking on these topics over the last handful of years. And so for folks that found this nutritious, where are the different places online or where should they go to get more of your insights? 
honestly, I think a lot of that came from my experience with first round capital because first round is all about sharing information amongst the portfolio. And of course, you know, when you guys first created review, I wanted to support anything that you were working on, Brett. Uh, and I think that really inspired that and I started seeing the results that came from it. So my book is available online. It's at foundingsales.com. The entire book is available online. You just register. It's free to read on the, on the website. I have a, my personal blog as well. There are not many Peter Kazanjis in the world. So if you just Google that and don't, <laughs> and don't worry, like Google will autocorrect it if you spell it wrong. Awesome. Thanks, Pete. This was a lot of fun. Sure was, Brett. Thanks. Thanks.